you guys know who the other guy is there? That's Keith. The Shooter McGavin, that's right. I superimposed. I, you know, if I want to become a memer, I've got the skill set there to, to drop those kind of things. So, um, the the thing that I want to, how many people here can do uh, financial modeling or valuation? Like that's kind of your thing. How many people? Few. Okay, good. For those of you that it's not, this first part of the presentation is kind of oriented towards you because you got to kind of understand the, the basics of that in order to kind of get some of the other stuff. And when I'm trying to teach people how to do valuations, the, the question I'd really like to ask them is, if I gave you a, or if I was going to sell you a money machine, how much would you be willing to pay for it? And the response that you get from a lot of people right out of the gate, they'll say, well, I'd pay anything for that. And uh, so then I, I kind of change the uh, scenario on them and I say, all right, well, maybe you wouldn't pay anything for it. Let's say that this, and as you well know, that that's not a money machine. That's like a counter of fiat currency and it's not even money, it's currency, right? <laughs> but we're gonna use it as an example. Um, so on the left side, you got a bond and on the right side, you got a stock. And people, when they are buying these things, are typically buying them in a very emotional way. I like to buy them in a very mathematical kind of way. Um, but what I did is I laid out some free cash flows into the future. So this money machine is going to kick off $100. That's all the more it can print in one year. Okay. And you got to understand what that scope is when you're valuing something. So on the left, we got a bond. It's going to go for 10 years. At the end of the 10 years, it's not kicking off any, any more money. It's done, right? And you can see kind of the, some of the assumptions there that I listed underneath of it. Um, the manufacturer of this money machine is going to buy it back from you for $1,000 at, at the end of that 10th year. When you're looking at stocks, it's very similar to a bond in, in how you're thinking about the value of a stock. The only difference is, is it can go out into perpetuity. It can just keep on going or it could die in three years. The, the variance in those free cash flows aren't something that you can put a lot of credence in. Like it might be 50, it might be 100, it might be 150. But on average, I was just showing that there's a little bit more variance. So when you're thinking about a risk premium of like, should I pay more or pay less? Those are some of the things that drive what should be risk premiums in a normal functioning system where the currency or the, or the money that it's kicking off isn't being debased. We got to make an assumption that the money, and this is a core assumption that I think many value investors don't make, is that they're not dealing with a sound number of units that aren't being manipulated, right? So when we look at this scenario, and now that I described it that way, how much are you willing to pay for the money machine? Because the answer shifts from, I'd pay anything to something very specific. Um, so let's go to the next slide here. One of the great things about uh, publicly traded stocks or bonds is you know what the asking price is. Many of uh, people that have gone to the university or studied business, they like to treat the price as if it's an unknown. And as an engineer at heart, like, it's just mind-blowing to me that they're teaching you to treat that like it's an unknown variable when, in fact, it's very known. Like, they're saying, I will sell this for $500. Are you going to do it? Are you going to take it or not take it, right? It's, an, it's a given. It's not an unknown. So here's the price. It's 500 bucks, And those are the free cash flows. So is that a good deal? That's the question, right? So what's your return in this scenario? 
Because if you're a, if you're buying meme stocks and things like that, you are not thinking like this. You're just thinking like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna buy an NFT and a picture of a rock. It's <laughs> crazy, just straight crazy. So in this scenario, at five hundred dollars. Those free cash flows, that stream of free cash flows, and then selling the machine back for $1,000 at the end of that will produce a 23% return if you pay $500 for it up front and you actually receive those, those free cash flows, right? So let's take this scenario. You can see that the price that you pay is super important, right? But let's double the money supply, right? Because that's what's happening. They're manipulating the number of units that are in the system. So let's say the asking price is 1,000, but your free cash flows are the same. What's your return? So we went from 23% to 10%. And it's not linear, right? That's a little non-linear. So let's, let's take it another step. Let's say the asking price, let's say somebody says it's $1,500. What kind of return are you going to get if you pay $1,500 for those free cash flows? Watch this one. 4%, okay? Now, let's go just to 1,700, okay? Just a 12% increase in the price. Before, we were doubling it. And that was just increased by 12%. What does that do to your return? Same free cash flows. Everything else is the same, right? 2%. It was cut in half, right? So what's happening here? What's going on? And this gets into this idea of convexity in the price compared to the, to the interest rates. And so here's my little green. When we get down here under a thousand, you can see how nervous I am because I'm like all over the place, <laughs> right? So here's here's the one percent. But look how much that price is sliding as you get underneath the one percent, and and it's exploding. It's 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 just blowing out, right? And my you know engineering teachers would absolutely murder me for not having uh, labels on the x and y axis of this. <laughs> I'm real, and I didn't proof these slides. So if you see like spelling mistakes, I, I, I'm sorry, I was moving pretty quick. Um, so if we're looking at these interest rates and what that means, so the, the important part here is interest rates go down, prices go up. When you get to the bottom of that, that convexity, it starts blowing out in ways that like you just can't even like comprehend. So when we look at this, this interest rate chart, this is the 10 year treasury. And when you look at 1981, here we go, um, right here, that's your peak of the 10-year treasury. If you look at a 30-year bond, if you look at a five-year bond, you can see that they all have these similar slopes coming down where the prices are going higher. If you were, if you were a fixed income, I say this statement sometimes when I'm doing a show, I said, well, you know, if you were in fixed income on Wall Street, like you could have put a ham sandwich there and they would have made money for the last 30, 40 years because interest rates just keep going down while the prices keep blowing out on those, on those bonds. And so what I find really interesting is look at this variance as it's kind of blowing out as you're getting closer and closer, trying to compress those yields down to zero and the prices to the moon. So what does that mean when we look at like the NASDAQ, right? Because when those prices in, in the bond market are going higher and the yields are going lower, the exact same thing is happening in the equity market. Remember how the second slide I had bonds and I had equities side by side, they're valued very similarly. People might think that they're valued differently. They're not. There's just different assumptions for how long those free cash flows can kick out into the future. 
But so as those interest rates go lower, look at your stock prices. They're literally, I mean, it's like Willy Wonka stuff. Like I, there's only one way out. It's up and out, right? So here's another chart. Um, this is the S&P 500. The green, those green bars that you're seeing there is showing you the, um, the quantitative easing that they were doing. So fancy word, they come up with a crazy word. It's, it's simple. Quantitative easing is we're gonna print a bunch of money. We're then gonna step into this free and open bond market. We're gonna buy all those bonds with all this cash we just printed. And we're gonna bid the price. We're gonna make the price of bonds go up. We're gonna push the yields lower, right? That's all it is. So how is that a free and open market when you're talking fixed thinking? Well, it's not. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um, so in this chart, what, what, what is interesting, so a person would look at this chart and they say, well, okay, they were manipulating the interest rates. They were dropping all this printing into the market. And then they had this gap where there was nothing, and then they picked it back up in here. I can't see that on this slide, but it's there, I promise you. There's green in here too. Um, and you can see, you can see the 10-year treasury is this green, this green line, and it keeps coming down. And this is the federal funds overnight lending rate where they're, where they're really doing the manipulation. And you can see how they tried to raise interest rates through this period of time. So you're at the 2016 into like 2019, and then you can see it's kind of interesting that they were already dropping those rates before even people even knew what COVID was, right? That's not talked about. Um, so you'd look at that and you'd say, well, the US was really trying to tighten the money supply there. But when you look at and when you zoom out even further and you're looking at it from a, a global collective uh, standpoint across central bankers, what, you're, what you really see, I don't know if you guys can see the color real well, but this is the U.S., how it plateaued and then it dropped where they were trying to tighten with the federal funds rate. But look at what everybody else in the world was doing, all, all the other central bankers in the world at that point. They were increasing. They were debasing. So it's almost, um, you know, it's, it's a coordinated event while one's trying to tighten and, and be responsible or less uh, loose with their monetary policy. Others are taking advantage of that and then it's working in tandem. And so when you collectively put the chart together, this is what it looks like. You can see the world was trying to normalize and it's just not a prayer, right? So are we seeing something that's going exponential here? It looks that way, but it's hard to, to know whether that's officially taking place or not. But I know I'm pretty suspect. Um, so here's a critical question, I think. If the debasement is competitive and coordinated, will anyone see the inflationary impacts when comparing their loss in buying power to another fiat currency? Right, so let's compare, let me walk you through an example. The dollar versus the euro, right? So let's just say we have a thousand units of the dollar and we have 850 units of the euro. This is the kind of the current exchange rate between those two currencies. We have a total number of fiat units between this closed system of 1,850 units. The, the ratio, the exchange ratio is 0.85, okay? So Jerome Powell decides he's just gonna burr a little out, right? He's gonna burr out a hundred units, okay? So be, before we had 1,000, now we got 1,100, and the euro is still sitting there at 100 or 850 units, okay? The ratio changed, now it's a 0.77. Total number of units have gone up. 
why why does why would he do this right why would why would he debase the currency and diminish the buying power of people in the United States. Well, it's real simple. For Europeans and any other country, right? But in this example, it's closed loop, just two countries. For Europeans, the impact of the U.S. goods and services, the cost of that went down. So what happens? It's like a, this vortice sucking euros over into the U.S. because the cost of those goods and services are cheaper, right? So they're going to go ahead and they're going to, the, the, all that foreign capital is now getting sucked into the U.S. and helps create this GDP growth. When you look at the S&P 500 and you look at the top line of the S&P 500, I want to say it's about half of that top line is coming from foreign currencies, not, to, not U.S. currency. And that's an important note. So, and, and likewise, like as those costs of goods and services go down in the U.S., the cost of goods and services, relatively speaking, for Americans trying to buy something in Europe goes up. So you're not seeing that. And so the delta is it's all flowing into the U.S., the, the fiat currency. So what's Europe's response? It's pretty simple, right? How are they going to respond? So now they're just going to burr some out, right? And burr a little out over in Europe. So they're going to add... 85 units, it's not 100 units like the US did, they don't have to do that. They burr out 85 units and look at your exchange rate down there in the blue banner underneath, it's back to the 0.85. So if you're in this system and everybody collectively is doing this, this race to devalue, right? Are you gonna see it? Are you gonna see it in fiat to fiat terms? No, it looks like things are just normal right meanwhile we have this thing called bitcoin right and when you look at how it's responding there's 21 and i'm assuming we're at like a terminal rate right i got it it's still you know getting there but in in a generic sense right those units went from 1850 units to 2035 just in a, in a one back and forth between just two nation states meanwhile the the number of units of bitcoin is fixed as we all know right and look at that exchange ratio when you're looking at the units all right so how can this madness possibly stop or end central banks have been incentivized to compete to competitively print and engineer a higher gdp Interest rates can't go up. We all know this because everybody's in debt up to their eyeballs, not just in this country, but all over the world with their real estate, right? They're going to go refi. They're going to go get another 30 years. They're going to push the interest rates down to 0.5, whatever, right? Transitioning to like, let's say the G7 says, oh, we're going to use the SDR. We're going to peg currency all of a sudden, right? Just straight up laughable. Like it's not even... It's not even hard to like wrap your head in. This requires trust amongst those seven or however many nation states would try to do that. It requires a path to austerity, guaranteed. Like you now have to go through austerity measures. How, how politically popular is that gonna be? There's zero, it's not gonna happen, right? Um, they gotta stop the UBI checks. They gotta stop doing QE by pushing rate. Give me a break, right? There's just no way. Um, so what's the answer? We all know the answer. I don't even have to read that one. Uh, so this is the question I got, that last bullet point, right? 
when we look at like it's it's hard for a lot of us that are dealing on such a micro scale. Um, <laughs> you guys read it. <laughs> like, how does this play out for uh, you know a large bond tranche of a billion plus dollars? Are they going to stuff all that buying power into something that has proven itself as being unmanipulable? Right? Or are they going to go to the you know the figurehead that just changes his mind? Well, now I'm ultra sound money, and next week I'm going to be super ultra sound money. And then, oh no, no one, there's no utility because it became so sound. And now I need to make it less ultra sound. Like, <laughs> right? I mean, we got people sticking their boogers to the wall and stuff. It's like. I just don't see the guy who's managing the billion dollar bond tranche saying, hey, that's the guy I'm, I'm getting behind, right? I just don't see it happening um, at all. So the narrative that just kind of drives me crazy is this gold one. And, and it is kind of fun watching like the CNBC commercials where they're just making fun of the gold bugs and stuff. But um, this is way, way bigger than like replacing gold's 10 trillion. I mean, that's just laughable to me, right? And so when you're looking at um, the size of this, this chart that I'm showing here, and it's kind of showing you the composition of all the, the different assets around the world. And this is a 2014 chart. And if you look at the M2 money supply growth that's happened between 2014 and now, it takes that number up to the number that I have there on the slide, which is just unfathomable, right? Like in size. And you got people on you know, going on CNBC from BlackRock, uh, commodities BlackRock going on CNBC talking about how this is going to be, excuse me, it wasn't commodities, it was the fixed income guy from BlackRock going on and talking about how it's going to replace gold. Isn't that a convenient narrative? I mean, if I was in fixed income and I wanted to dupe the world, that's what I'd be saying too. Um, and there they are doing it. So why is this, why is this situation so hard to understand for all your family members that you talk to about and make their ears bleed every time you're talking to them about Bitcoin, right? Why can't they understand it? I would say, I think one of the biggest parts goes back to the example that I was, that I was showing you between fiat currencies, right? Because we're all in this together and uh, no, every single country's got a fiat currency, nothing's pegged, right? And they're looking at it and they're saying, it, what are you talking about? Like, like I was buying something from Europe and this is the exchange rate and blah, blah, blah. Everybody's in the same boat, so it's hard for them to optically view it. But if you'd go back to Germany in the 1920s, right? And there's the chart. It, once you got into like 1922, 23, there wasn't a business out there that wasn't taking whatever earnings they were making and putting it immediately, their, their retained earnings into a foreign currency, right? Because they could optically see that, that their currency was exploding relative to everybody else's. But what happens if everybody's currency is exploding at the same time? It's really hard to see. And I think that's why you're getting a lot of people that are just skeptical. They're just not seeing it. They're not buying it. Um, anyone with assets, they're getting fiat rich, right? They just like, look at the house prices in the last 12 months. Like I just made 
30% on my house price in dollar terms. They're not looking at it in buying power. Hey, surprise, like Hoddle told me last night, hey, if everybody's house is going up by 20, 30%, did your house really go up by 20 or 30%? <laughs> it's a great way to say it. He's right. Um, it's never happened in anybody's lifetime, right? At least for most people. Some people from, that have come from other countries have seen things like this. But for most Americans, they've never seen anything like this. Uh, their parents haven't seen it. Their grandparents were like babies when the 1920s happened. So it's like we've been conditioned to think that this could never happen here. Um, and then you got the, the weirdos, the, you know, the, the Steve Hankies of the world that are, you know, too, like way too, like, smart. I don't know. They're not smart, but like... He's done a lot of hard work. He was smart in the system that existed before, right? And I don't want to, you know, bash people, but like sometimes you get so indoctrinated into the system that you grew up in that it's extremely difficult to challenge some of those beliefs. And I mean, could you imagine all the papers that he's written through the years to validate his life's work of some of the things? And there's many other people beyond him that I'm describing. And so uh, I think those are some of the reasons why it's hard for people to really get it. And so, like, my recommendation for you is if you're describing it to people and they're just pushing back, sometimes the best way to, like, make people rethink or recage their thought is you just say, yeah, you're probably right. And just walk away. <laughs> because then it's just like something, something is off, right? Like, most people want to do battle. They want to explain why they're right, and I'm going to jam this down your throat. But sometimes the best way to, like... Uh, exercise control is to provide free will to the other person to you know just walk away with that hey, you might be right see you <laughs> like what am i missing right <laughs> uh but anyway yeah i think it's really interesting to see uh the germany chart there i think it's way more relevant than people think but i think it's really hard for people to see it because they're always looking at the other fiat currencies i mean that's all i got uh One of my favorite quotes of all time right there, just, you got this superior asset, Laura. It's going to go up forever. <laughs> what are your questions? 